Hello F1 fans and welcome along to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. We were treated to a mesmerising race at Imola, weren't we? There was so much action and excitement, yet for Williams, it was the wrong kind of excitement. After showing great promise in qualifying, Nicholas Latifi and George Russell crashed out of the race spectacularly. It was a setback, but there were still reasons to be cheerful because Williams have clearly made a decent step over the winter, as proven by both drivers getting into Q2 at the weekend, and points finishes will surely follow. But if you look further ahead, the picture gets even rosier. Because Williams are going places, some excellent staffing decisions have been made since Doralton Capital bought the team in September, and that should translate into performance in due course. The appointment of Jos Capito as CEO was, for me, a masterstroke. And I'm delighted to say that Jost is my guest this week. Jost has as good a motorsport pedigree as you're likely to find. His most recent successes on the World Championship stage have come in rallying, when he oversaw Ford and Volkswagen's world title successes. But he's also achieved a huge amount in Formula One. In the late 90s and early noughties, he was a bigwig at Sauber, overseeing the team's progression from 8th in the 99 Constructors' Championship to 4th just two years later. And he was instrumental in bringing a young Kimi Raikkonen to the team in 2001. After a brief spell with McLaren, which ended after Ron Dennis left the team, Jost has been waiting for the right opportunity to return to Formula One, which has come in the shape of Williams. The team has been on its uppers in recent years. It scored only one World Championship point in the last two years. But new ownership has given new impetus. And Russell was only one-tenth of a second shy of a place in Q3 at Imola. Jost is a knowledgeable, thoughtful and passionate man. He loves motorsport in all of its forms and he truly believes that his broad experience can only help in turning around Williams' fortunes. So we discuss everything from Dakar to WRC to Formula One, from Jensen Button to George Russell and the future. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Jos, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's great to have you. And it's great to see you back in Formula One as well. What is it about Williams that persuaded you to come back? I think it's Williams by itself, isn't it? That I think Formula One is Williams and Williams is Formula One. I would not have taken any other job in Formula One anymore. So, you know, I planned to retire and was all set up to retire. But if you get the chance to work for Williams, then I think it doesn't take long to decide and to think about because that is one of the legendary teams of Formula One and you just have to do it. You don't strike me as a man who was about to retire at 62. You've achieved so much in your career, Jos. Were you really thinking of, I don't know, lots of motocross or, or hanging up your metaphorical helmet i suppose I, I would say retirement for me is not like not do, not doing anything anymore so i had a lot of plans what i would do but not working for a corporation or being corporate anymore uh, doing very many different things that was the plan but uh, i think when the opportunity comes to be at williams then you put everything else aside can you put a timeline on it when did the opportunity first present itself yeah, I would say around end of last year. And did it all happen quite quickly? How, how long did it take you 
to say yes? It didn't take me long when I first got in touch with the Doris and the new owners. It came pretty clear that they, for me, they have the right mindset. They want Williams to be Williams in the future. They see their engagement as a long-term engagement and they really want to get Williams back to the top. And they know what it takes to get Williams back to the top. And we had quite a good personal connection. We have the same kind of management style, the same kind of values. And that made it then very easy to decide very quickly that this is what I would really like to do. You talk about getting Williams back to the top. What is it going to take? What's your early analysis of where the team is at? The team itself is is very good. And uh, I think the, the tense position doesn't reflect the capabilities of the team. You know, there had been financial restraints in the last couple of years. And if you don't have the opportunity to invest in new technologies and go with the new technologies, you're falling behind. And that is what happened. There's still very talented people around and a great mix of young talent and of very experienced talent. I think now with, with Dorothy, the investments coming in and came in already last year to get the tools and the infrastructure up to speed where it needs to be, that for me is the basis to get the team back to the top. How different are Doralton to a billionaire? Let's compare your situation with Aston Martin. How different is it having Doralton as an owner as to Lawrence Stroll, a billionaire? I have no idea how it is <laughs> to have a billionaire as an yeah. owner. I don't have experience with that. I just see what can talk about what I find with Doralton at Williams. And I find very professional people who are very experienced business people, who are very experienced in private equity and in bringing up companies. And what I found as well is that they are not getting into companies and change the management. So they try to work with the management that they find because they look into companies that are well managed and just uh, have an opportunity and couldn't get up to speed because of certain things that were not necessarily the management style mm. or the people that are working there. That's for me is uh, is an ideal situation, I would say. And Chairman Matthew Savage, how involved is he on a daily basis or does he leave that to you? I would say he's available for me 24-7. It's really great. when Whenever I can discuss everything I want to discuss with him, but he leaves me the freedom. But as you mentioned, we started working together just in February properly. It needs a certain time where we need to work very close, that we understand each other thinking and getting the confidence working together. And this process is working very well. And, and how are things on the shop floor? What kind of team have you walked into? I mean, how's morale after a few years of struggle? I think the team went through a lot. The change of ownership and the family isn't involved on a daily basis anymore. That's a huge change for the team because as long as the team is existing, it was Frank there, Claire there every single day. For sure, that is a big change for everybody. On the other hand, it was they've seen that investment is coming in and they have a chance to get the latest technology. I'm sure that, that the team has been so what does the future bring? Is the future better than or is the future worse? Or the family not being in, but investments coming in. And how are the new owners? 
I think what is now is very important to give the team the confidence that, you know, we still love the heritage we have. We love the Williams name. We are still close to the family. And everything was good about Williams is still there and will be there, but that we're not getting caught in the past because we have to move forward. I think that is where the feelings of the team have to be directed now and can make sure that we are on a good way. Jost, have you personally had any contact with Frank since you arrived? No, I didn't have the contact with Frank because, you know, he wasn't very well and, and is not very well. But I had quite a lot of contact with Claire. And do you feel you've got Claire's blessing? Yes. Yes, absolutely. We highly rate each other. We, we knew each other and we like each other. So there's also a human connection. Frank's employed a few CEOs over the years. I was wondering, how, was there ever an opportunity to work for the team before? <laughs> that, I keep that for me. <laughs> Pregnant pause, Jos. That's interesting in itself, actually. Has there been a long-term connection between you and Williams? Were you a fan as a kid of Frank's cars, that kind of thing? Of course I've been a fan as a kid. I followed Formula One as long as I can think of. And this is nearly 60 years. So it's quite a long time. Yeah, I've been to the Nürburgring with my father in the early 60s when the Formula One was in the old paddock and you could get to the cars and you could be in the garages. And that caught me at that time. And you can't be a Formula One fan since the 60s and not being a fan of Williams, isn't it? That's simply impossible because that's such a heritage and such successes. And the drivers who have been there, it's, it, it, when you could walk through the museum and in, in Grove, you get uh, chicken pox. How is it called? No, not the not, not not chicken, chicken pox. <laughs> that's, a that's a disease. You get goosebumps. Yes, we both get goosebumps when we go through. Sorry for my bad English. <laughs> <laughs> yes, on the topic of your English, is it true that you had to take an English exam to get your work visa? Of course, it was a three hours English exam with a computer. And it was really difficult, really difficult. Even if I lived in the UK for more than seven years, it's really difficult. And I was told that if the English do the test, more than 50% fail. Well, the fact that I'm talking to you now suggests you pass. So, <laughs> so, so well done. Yeah, yeah, good, okay. <laughs> Look, Jos, can you compare the job you're doing now at Williams with other jobs you've had in your career because it's been a hell of a career with you, you know you've run the, the Ford's motorsport program Volkswagen as well you've uh, Sauber you were there for what five years how different is what you're doing now to everything that came before I think every job I have done was different every time you learn so every time you learn on your management style and I think if you're getting older you get also a bit calmer and maybe a bit less emotional <laughs> All the jobs are different, but on the one on the other side, it's all about teams, and it's always to create the best team in the environment or in the competition you are in. That is no difference to wherever you go. You have to work with people, and you have to form the potential and the individuals to work as a team and perform well together. The first motorsport job was with BMW. Am I right in saying you work with Paul Rocher? Yeah, I worked with Paul Roscher and I wanted to work with Paul Roscher. That's why I went to university in Munich and I was in, uh, I, I did enduro uh, racing and motocross racing. 
So I was also in the Munich Motorsport Club where Paul Roche was a member, Alex Falkenhausen was a member, and George Meyer was a member. And, and I raced with those guys, with the guys who are members of the Motorsport Club. So, and I was racing Zündab also at that time. They were based in Munich. So for me, I've always wanted to work for and with Paul Roche and doing engines. So that's why I went to university in Munich and I fought hard to get my diploma work to do at BMW Motorsport. And then I got employed during my diploma work, but not on the racing side. I worked a bit on the racing side. I never wanted to be on the racing side. I wanted to be on the performance car side. So my diploma work was about the a gas exchange of the first M3 engine, the four-cylinder four-valve engine. Then I got employed to be in charge of the performance development of the M models. And uh, my as there was at the beginning was not a real differentiation between performance cars and the racing, then my first racing job there was to go to Schnitzer and work on the engine calibration on their dyno for the six BMW 6 Coupe that was racing in the touring car championships at that time. That was mid eighties. Oh. And that was a great experience to work with those guys at Schnitzer. Yeah. Great team. Great racing team. And what about your own motocross experiences? I mean, every guy I've ever met who's done that is clearly mad. <laughs> I don't know. I'm someone called me mad. You know, I started doing, I wanted to do enduro racing and then motocross just came in addition, but I was, always preferred the enduro racing so i've been a twice junior german champion in enduro in 75 and 76 and i did a couple of uh, years i did the international six days enduro and in 79 i came third in my category but then i had to decide do i go on being professional racer or do i do engineering and i was more fascinated by engineering and I knew I wouldn't make it to the very, very top in racing. So I was, okay, I might do it at the very, very top in <laughs> engineering. How long were the enduro races that you were doing? Uh, it was, you know, the German Championship were one-day events, 240 kilometers a day off-road. And then the European Championship was always two-day event. And then the six days enduro, of course, is a six-days event mm -hmm. once a year. So it was only natural that you would then at some point have a crack at the Dakar rally, I suppose. It really came through my father. My father was on, on vacation. He went on vacation with my mother in the Sahara in 79, and he met the Dakar rally there. That was the first ever Dakar rally, and they met Jerry Sabine. And uh, he followed, and then he came back and said, that's what we have to do. This is what <laughs> we need to do. My father did it in 81 on a motorbike together with Herbert Check. I think he is a legend in himself. But then both failed and said, okay, we have to do it again and properly. And then in 83, I couldn't do it in 81 because I went to university and had all the exams. 83, we prepared to do it again. And then we've got Gaston Rayet on our bike as my father wanted to race on a motorbike again. But he got a heart attack. So then we got Gaston Rayet to ride our bike. I was driving in a Toyota Land Cruiser in the service category the service category is part of the race it's just one category yeah the others Castora failed then he but the engine broke and uh, the other service car the other car we had we had two service cars that was with my brother and a friend and they went back with him so i waited for them and then the organizers told me they are not coming they went back home i had to decide 
do I continue my own or do I drive back home as well? So I decided to continue on my own. That was the hardest ever, I would say. That's incredible. So like, <laughs> how, how long did you go on your own? That was a thing from day four. So it was more than two weeks. Oh my goodness. Wow. And is the Dakar the hardest event in motorsport? For that time, for sure it was. It was, what, 15,000 kilometers in three weeks. You know, you had to do everything on your own. Also, when we did the Dakar with Unimogs in 85 and 86, uh, we were two Unimogs, four guys. That's it for doing everything. If you do that, you learn everything about racing because you have to be the driver. You have to be the navigator. You have to be your chef. You have to be your admin. You have to be your mechanic. Everything. A great school. You learn every single aspect of racing. Because you have to be in everything. And they say that helped me a lot to understand every single role in racing. And also made me understand that every single role is extremely important to be successful. Because if you don't have the proper food, you will not succeed. That is very important. When you are at the Dakar, you have to force yourself to get the proper food, to eat proper food, to get the vitamins, whatever exhausted and tired you are. You have to do it. You know, if you haven't got your admin right, you can't pass the border and you will lose the race. You will not finish it. So that really brings you up that every single detail is very important that you have to be the best in every single detail and that you appreciate every single position in the team. If you're in Formula One, you have to be specialized. It's impossible to do everything, but you have to understand that every single role is extremely important. I think that you learn very much in an experience like the Dakar as it was in the 80s. Were you surprised that Fernando Alonso had a go at the Dakar last year? No, I, I think that it's still it's a fascinating event. I think it's still the longest and the hardest race. And I unfortunately, I never did the Baja 1000. I once had the chance and couldn't do it because of uh, university and again exams that I'm still regretting. Even if I would have studied and would have been at university a year longer, I should have done that. Well, now here's a thing, Jos, because Jensen Button, who's working with the team, wants to do the Baja 1000. Or in fact, has he done it? I think he's done it, yeah. Yeah, I can see you two linking up. I've been surfing on the west coast of Mexico and I've actually driven part of the Baja course. It is mental. It's the only, it's the only word I can use. Flat oh, no. out. And just dirt roads, I mean, I think it'll make the Dakar look tame. I once tried, Denny Sullivan let me drive his trophy truck in the desert close to Las Vegas. This was unbelievable experience to drive one of these trucks. You have about 900 horsepower, three gears, and you launch in third gear. It's that powerful. And I could drive it for about half an hour, and then it got an abrupt stop because I rolled it. (laughs) It was yeah. a fantastic experience, and uh, I really would love to do that once. I mentioned Jensen then. Can you just clarify, what's JB's role with Williams these days? I'm talking to him quite often. It's just his general experience, his general approach. He is loved by the team. For me, it's so good to have somebody I can talk to with that kind of experience. And if I have an issue, if I don't know, should I do go this way, that way, to have somebody with that experience to talk to. And this is fantastic. And also when he is around, not yet, but he will go in the factory and he's a great motivator as well. We are also from the personality. I think we are quite similar. So we, we benefit from each other and we don't see a great chance 
to get the team back to the top together. And him being involved is fantastic for me. Let's talk about your previous experiences in Formula One. Sauber, first of all. Did you go to Sauber to work on a, a Proton Formula One engine? Is that right? After BMW, I went to Porsche. So I've been in the Porsche race department for seven years. But that time we started the Carrera Cup and I had the great chance to work with Herbert Linger, who, who founded Weissa for Porsche, who bought Weissa for Porsche, he bought the area for Porsche. I think it was the fourth employee for Porsche. And it was a fantastic experience to work with somebody who knows Porsche in and out. And then we started the Super Cup within Formula One. That It's still running since 93, and it's running continuously up to now. And the Carrera Cup started in 90, and it's still running. So this is more than 30 years. I was team manager for Le Mans in 94, when Porsche won 94, with the first time with the GT1s, with the Dauer 962. That was a great experience. So I've been then in racing for seven years at Porsche. And um, I wanted to go back to performance. And I got the chance at Sauber. They started a joint venture with Petrona, Sauber Petronas Engineering. It was more about the performance engine strategy for Malaysia. And that fascinated me to work on, uh, on a master plan for the technology of a country. That was really great. And I had the great opportunity to work with Osamu Goto. So it was him and me, the first two guys starting up that engineering company. I think everybody who has the history in Formula One knows who Osamu Goto is. He was behind the successful Honda engines in the with McLaren. And then he was in charge of the Ferrari engines for Formula One. So it's a great personality and I learned a lot from him and it, we sat in the same office and it was, was just fantastic. He had the experience with the Formula One engines and we had at Sauber, we had the Petronas branded engines from Ferrari. And at that time, you didn't get the actual engines. You got uh, the engines from the year before or two years before. We ended up to further develop these engines for ourselves. So that was in addition to the commercial engine we were developing for Petronas, looking into the Formula One engines. What was another great opportunity? Did you then get sort of pulled a little bit more towards the team aspect at Sauber? Did Peter Sauber pull you more to run the team in Hinwil? Is that right? They did an external consultants company. They asked to look into what Sauber as the Formula One team has to do to become more competitive. And the result was the team has to develop from a traditional race team into an engineering and process-led company and with a structure, with the communication structures, processes, and so on. And as the engineering company was established and was running well, they asked me if I, in addition, I would do the COO job for the Formula One team to change the team and to modernize and make it according to what the study came up with. Mm -hmm. And of course, I accepted that. I always accept big challenges. And that was a big challenge. And then Sauber was eight when I joined in 98. And we moved it up to fours for 2001 with the same budget. It was just working in a different way with the same people. That was a fantastic experience. I can see history repeating itself because in a way that it's the same job description at Williams, I guess. You're working with the same people or largely the same people. Yeah, yeah very much the same. Yes. And for Sauber, 
just how difficult is it being located in Switzerland? Because you're now running a team that is in, well, what us Brits like to call motorsport valley. There's teams all over the place. There's talent. There's cottage industries supporting Formula One in the UK. How difficult is it for Sauber being in Switzerland? All has its pros and cons. When I was at Sauber, we had to get talent in as well. And we had to look at talent from other teams. I think it's attractive to live in Switzerland. There is no doubt. Yeah. Also for the English, it's attractive. And it's a fantastic area. You're close to skiing. You are at the lake. You're, and the, the food is good. And so living in Switzerland is for sure not a disadvantage. Then if you have not being in the Motorsport Valley, being in Switzerland, you get then the full commitment. Who Everybody is there has the full commitment. And it's not so easy then to swap within the teams where here you can easy, without moving house, you can work for various teams. And in Switzerland, that's not the case. So you get much more a family feeling there because you are like an enclave for Formula One there. And the people who are there want to stay there and love living there. And it's not just, oh, I love living here, but I want to work somewhere else. So that for sure is an advantage. The disadvantage is, of course, if you for moving a family that has, where, where kids go to school and then moving then to Switzerland is a much bigger decision than just your kids can stay in the same school and you move to another team. So there you have advantages and disadvantages, but I really enjoyed the time itself. You would have been central to the decision to bring in a very young Kimi Raikkonen in 2001. I mean, when you look back on that, do you go, oh my goodness, we must have been mad? <laughs> because Kimi had, what, 20-odd car races under his belt? Or did you just completely believe in him from the word go and look back and say, well, we were proven right? I believed in him from the first time. When I got, you know, I had the discussion with, with his managers that I knew. And they said, we have a really young, good Finn who will be excellent. And they, uh, you want to sell me one? And then gave me the name and I looked it up I looked in autosport in the library and everywhere and I found out that he won races with a card in the rain on slicks because he couldn't afford wets and then I followed his races he did in 2000 and especially the Formula 3 race in Spa was absolutely impressive where he, I think he had an engine failure or something in first free practice and then in the rain he did the best time and in qualifying and I said look it's worthwhile to invite him and when he came first time to Hinville, I think looking in his eye, you, I knew he is he is the guy you have to keep. And the experience I had with drivers through the Porsche times, that was com is completely underestimated. Because we had in the Carrera Cup and Super Cup, we had always two VIP cars. So it was Ralf Schumacher was in, Eddie Irvine was in, yeah. Hackinen was in, he did two races. Every year I had about 30, 40 race drivers who got in the team and had to perform in one weekend, who had to get the team behind them and so on. And uh, I think then you get a feeling really quickly who is exceptional. And with Kimi, it was clear that he would be exceptional. I had this feeling right from the beginning. Did you know right from the beginning that the big sharks were going to come looking for him and that it was going to be hard to keep hold of him? No, I was a bit naive. I did a big mistake then. You know, I could have thought to Peter, if you ever sell him, I want 10% because I brought him. 
I'm sure Peter has said somewhere that selling Kimmy bought Sauber the wind tunnel or something. Is that right? It was a good deal anyway. Getting Kimmy in was a big step towards coming fourth in the championship in 2001. Of course, if you move up the ladder, you have more commercial opportunities as well. So Kimmy was for sure then part of that. That is what made happen. So I started the wind tunnel project at Sauber. So that was my project. Talking of moving up the ladder, the next step for you was to run Ford's motorsport program. And you had great success in World Rally. I wanted to ask you, how much contact did you have during that time with Formula One? I think that was, again, I moved then to Ford to do the performance cars because I was always really fascinated in developing performance cars and give cars to customers and sell cars to customers. And I said, okay, at a certain time, I need a normal life and get out of racing again and do the performance cars. Then after, again, 18 months, I got a call and say, we want you to run the motorsport department in addition. So I was then in charge of the performance vehicles, the ST models, the RS models, and of the motorsport. And motorsport, it was one was, of course, the rally program was a big program. But I also inherited the engine program, the Cosmos engine program for, for Jordan. So I had two years then dealing with Eddie, the engine program. That was very good lessons, very good lessons. And I'm still friends with Eddie. So I don't know how many you find working two years with Eddie and still friends 10, 50 years after, but 20 years now nearly. So we still have a fantastic relationship and we had a great time working together. And did the Jaguar Formula One program come under under your jurisdiction as well? No, that was under Jaguar. The Jaguar and Ford were, were you know, Ford left the brands being independent. And uh, that was the, the Ford program had what, nothing to do with the Jaguar program. Of course, we talked to each other and we were the same, let's say, big company but it was run completely different. And that sort of early noughties era was the time when a lot of car manufacturers came into Formula One with different levels of success. I mean, the Toyotas of this world, of course, less success. Honda come in, buy BAR, and then end up pulling out when the financial crisis hits. Given your experience on both sides of the fence, you know, with the big manufacturer and in racing teams... How different is the ethos? I wouldn't say the ethos in principle is different because when you do road cars, and especially where I've been in performance cars, it's a huge competition. You have to beat your competitor. You have to sell more cars than the others. You have to do the better car. So I think every business nowadays is very competitive, but the road car business is highly competitive. You get a lot of knowledge that can be also used in, in motorsports. If you want to be successful in motorsport, I believe you have to take the best from both worlds. You have to take the best what you learn from the industry, from the car industry, and but you still have to remain nimble and know what makes successful racing. So you have to get the tools from the big company, but you have to still have the experience how you've been successful as being a race driver. And being in a private team, what does a team make successful? If you just look at it from the big company perspective, I don't think it will be very successful. And if you just run it as a private, small race team without any processes, it will not be successful either. So I think the combination is what makes a successful race team. 
when we look at the combination of rallying and Formula One, where does the real skill lie when it comes to drivers? Who's better? I suppose what I'm saying, you're saying who's better, Lewis Hamilton or, or Seb Ogier? <laughs> I think it's difficult. It's completely different categories. I think as a Formula One driver, it's all about precision. It's very much about precision and not about flexibility. When you're a rally driver, you find every single stage is different. Every situation is different. And you have to react much more to what the car is doing. It's not to try the car that does exactly the same every single lap and to be more precise, more precise, more precise. It's in rallying, you have to get the best out of your car and it moves around and it's not that predictable as it is in a Formula One car. So I, I think you can't compare who, say, who is the better driver, Formula One driver or a rally driver. When you see what Kimi, when he was in rallying, has never been with the co-pilot, he did an extraordinary job in WRC. Uh, I, I was fascinated by what he could do. So I think if somebody is really such a talented driver, wherever he gets in, he will be good. So I agree, it's too simplistic to say who's better, but equally could Seb Ogier, for example, with, with enough practice, cut it in Formula One? I don't know. I wouldn't say it's impossible. In rallying, it is, I think it's also then an age thing. Yeah? In rallying, you need so much experience to get to the top. You can't be at the top with 21, 22. It's simply impossible because you need the experience. On You have so much different surfaces. You have different weather conditions. You have one year, you have raining, then you have snow, then you have dry, and you have so many different conditions, and you have to learn the stages. You know, it needs a lot of years to build up that you can really be at the very top. Where on circuit racing, I think you can't be there much faster. So if you have a top guy from rallying going into Formula One, he is overaged already for Formula One because you have to decide at a very early stage you go rallying or you go on road racing if you want to end up in Formula One. If he would go into a Le Mans, he would be brilliant. How do you reflect on your five months at McLaren in 2016? I think working with Ron at McLaren was a fantastic time. We built up a great relationship. We had really fun and enjoyed working together. If we would have stayed, I think we would have had a great time at McLaren. But then when he left and I had such a great understanding working with him and put the objectives and where we want to go together, that was very difficult then to get this through because if you have that kind of change in the top of a team, I think a lot of things change. And then I think it was a better way to make then a clear cut and do something else. So you knew the writing was on the wall as soon as Ron was out of the picture? As I said, if you have these changes on the top, then, then more changes than just Ron go walking out. For me, then it was, okay, I'm not sure if we can achieve and do it the way we agreed to do it. And then yeah, it was better to walk away. So no hard feelings. Although it is funny, funny isn't no, it? No, no, no hard feelings whatsoever. Just it's funny, isn't it, that Zach chose an ex-BMW and an ex-Porsche man to lead McLaren instead of you. And in fact, an ex-Munich Technical University graduate as well in Andreas Seidel. Yeah, but, you know, I was gone by then. So it would have been awkward for me going then back. That would, would have been awkward. And I wouldn't have done that because that wouldn't have been good for the team. 
you know, and Andreas and I, we worked in the same company. We have the same education. Andreas worked a lot with Willy. So I know exactly where he's coming from, what his intuition is. And so we are, we are pretty close. They did a great choice in taking Andreas to run the Formula One team as a team principal. It was a fantastic choice and you see it in the results. Can we talk about your two guys at Williams now, George and Nicholas? What impresses you about George? Like There is a lot. In George, I see a lot what I've seen in Kimi. His driving is brilliant. His natural talent is brilliant, but he doesn't rely just on his natural talent. He is working very hard as well, and he is demanding. Yeah, Where I said before, it's not easy to work with him. Where I said this is negative, I say no, this is a compliment, because he is demanding. He wants more and more. He is never happy, and the driver should never be happy with what he has. But he has the ability to get the team behind him. Everybody is really pushing and motivated to give him what he is demanding. And that is uh, an ability that really a top driver needs. That's really interesting. And after what we saw him do in the Mercedes uh, in Sakir at the end of last year, are you nervous other people are going to come hunting for him for 2022? I wouldn't say nervous. That's part of the business, isn't it? As the team will move forward and he will move forward and I think the season will show what will happen next year. So, of course, that every driver wants to be in the in the winning car. That is absolutely clear, and he, and he should aim for this. And uh, let's see where he believes in where Williams is next year. There is no miracles in the sport, so we will not have a winning car next year. It's absolutely clear, and this is simply impossible because that is a. It's a longer-term objective where you have to work towards and then let's see what happens on the driver's market at the end of the year. Okay, Of course, uh, I would love to keep him. There's no doubt. And so what has Nicholas Latifi got to do this year? He's got a tough old job alongside George Russell, isn't he? Yeah, that's what I want to say. It's To be the teammate of George is very difficult, the same as being the teammate of Lewis. That is always difficult. But there, I'm impressed how he handles this. It was his rookie year also last year. So he has to learn and he learned from that. And he has to prove this year what he learned last year. He had a couple of 11th positions last year. So he was close to a point last year. He's working very hard. I've seen that for the test and for the race, how the people around him are very good. So he has very good support there. I think he can show and improve a lot this season. I believe he is better than his reputation is. Also working with the team is very good. His feedback is very good and he's working hard and he's very good in the simulator as well. So it's really a pleasure working with him. It was interesting to hear you say that you won't have a winning car in 2022. I was hoping you might think that the rule changes give Williams an opportunity to move dramatically up the order, but you say it's too big a jump. Yeah, of course we are expecting and working towards a significant step. But to say that there's a chance to win the championship in next year, that's a completely different dimension. Of course, the new regulation give a chance. But as you see, the new owners came in towards the end of last year and there is a lot of investment needed. You have to make this investment work. You say, to make that all work, is for the 22 car is already quite late to come in have that all for the 22 car because you have to make it work so to be realistic 
would want to do a significant step, but it would be completely unrealistic to believe we will have the car that can win the championship next year. And has FX de Maison, your new technical boss, has he arrived in time to have a proper influence over 22? That has to be seen. I, I think there's still a chance. He has to get in the job. He arrived this week and now he's in five-day quarantine. So <laughs> he can't see anybody. He's just on, on Teams meetings and so on to, to meet this team. And it's very difficult for him as it was for me to get in and meet your colleagues and your just over video calls. So I think by next week he will be in the factory and uh, then we'll see. But, you know, we also have Willy Ramp involved for a couple of weeks now and he is supporting on the technical side and that will have an impact as well. So I'm very confident. Willy is working with the team long term. Um, with Willy, you never know what's long term. <laughs> <laughs> but I worked with him at Sauber as a technical director. I worked with him at Volkswagen. I could always convince him to stay and to do to, to another year, another year, another year, as we love and enjoy working with each other. And uh, I'm sure it's here the same. He loves to work with FX. He loves to work with me. And as long as he enjoys it, and uh, he will be there. How crucial is Willie to FX in terms of showing FX the ropes, showing him Formula One, and just speeding up his, his development, if you like? I think it's an important role, but they worked together for what now nine years, nine years, something like this at Volkswagen, and they enjoyed working together from day one. FX already has all the experience of Willy, even that the rally car was was so dominant. The Polo is that the Formula One experience that Willy brought in and worked with FX on it. So to say FX has not been in Formula One, he worked with the Formula One technical director for 10 years, and he is a very clever, very good, and highly rated engineer. Mm. So he learned already a lot. So even if he didn't do a Formula One car, but he worked 10 years with a Formula One technical director. What is FX's greatest strength as an engineer? He's got a couple. First, his engineering talent is outstanding. And his ability to to see the overall car. And this is what you learn at rallying. You have to see the overall car as one piece. When you go in teams nowadays, they say, some say Formula One, it's just all aerodynamics. Aerodynamics is a huge part, but it's not all. That way, he has the ability to see the combination of everything that is needed to make a fast car. Yeah, and also aerodynamics is crucial for a rally car. If you go to Finland and jump 50 meters, the aerodynamics has to be good and right. I think the aerodynamics from the outside of rally cars is very much underestimated. When you look in the details, they are also aerodynamic vehicles on a, on a highly developed basis. On the subject of Volkswagen, you've worked with them for many years. You've brought them many, many trophies in rallying. How important is top-level motorsport to the Volkswagen Group? For the Volkswagen Group, of course, it's very important. You have brands that just in the past and now live on motorsport. You look at Porsche, Audi as well. For Audi, it's very important. And you can discuss if it's important to have that for every brand. And with the change in the automotive industry, of course, Volkswagen Group had to adapt their motorsport policy as well. and 
as a motorsport fan, of course, you don't like that Volkswagen closes Volkswagen Motorsport. But when you look on the group level, it might not be that stupid, as it seems to be. Because there's a lot of chat about Porsche coming in to Formula One in 2025. Are you making a lot of phone calls? Are you keeping them up to speed with what's happening? No, of course, I have still friends in Porsche since I worked at Porsche. You know, we had also a group motorsport committee where all the motorsport directors had general meetings. So we all know each other, but I don't think there is anything right now to chat about Formula One. When you look at Porsche, they have always been close to Formula One, interested in Formula One. And if you are a company like Volkswagen and Porsche, you always have to look in all kinds of opportunities. So everything is always on the table. I believe for new manufacturers coming in, it's very important how the new engine regulations will look like. What would you like the engine regulations to be? It's very difficult for me to say, and I think it needs much more discussions to define what is the best way forward. I don't think that it's just that's it. There are quite a couple of options that have to be really looked at into detail. And I'm sure the FOM and FIA are doing a great job right now in starting these discussions. But to attract new manufacturers like Porsche, is there a particular thing they'll be looking for in those regulations in 2025? Um, I would believe that costs are an issue and uh, future sustainability opportunities are an issue. And I think those are the key issues that have to be looked at. And also that needs a discussion with the car, with the manufacturers as well. So what are they looking for? What, what, are, what is their interest? What's their strategy? for the next 10 years it's not just two three years you have to look into 10 years and 2030 and beyond yes just to finish by talking about this season 2021 the car seems to have made a, a solid start to the year what do you want to see what will if you and i are chatting um in abu dhabi at the end of the year what will be a, a successful season for williams in 21 we don't measure, will not measure the success this year in the championship position or in the number of points because it's very difficult. Basically, the car didn't change a lot from last year to this year based to the regulations. So well, we are where we are and we know that. But we will fight to get every point we can get, reducing mistakes, do a clever strategy and maybe do things different than others do to get points when they're on the table. For us, it is that we close the gap to the teams who are in front of us and in principle not doing mistakes and use the potential of the car we have. But we will not sacrifice the 22 car because we want to make the 21 car faster. So, for example, you have 22.5% more wind tunnel time this year than Mercedes. How much of that is going to be spent looking at the 21 car or is it all going to be put on the, on the 22 car? Everything we can will be put on the 22 car. And if there is something left, it would be put on the 21 car. <laughs> okay. Well, Jos, it's fantastic to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. He's an operator, isn't he? You sense Jos knows what it takes to win, and he's simply putting the building blocks in place at Williams to do just that. He wants to close the gap to the cars in front, which he's already done this year, and he wants to make a further step in 2022. And why not, given the extent of the rule changes? 
The plan is calculated and logical, and Yost exudes the confidence that a team needs in its leader. It permeates through the entire company. Yost, thanks for your time. It was great to catch up, and I look forward to seeing you in Portugal next week. Before we move on, please remember to send in any stories or chance meetings or thoughts that you might have on Yost. They could be from rallying, Formula One, whatever. We love hearing from you. And remember, I'll read out the best Yost stories next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Yano Truly after last week's show. Hearing Yano's voice sparked lots of memories from you all. So here's some of what you sent in. Glamorous triathlete got in touch to say this. Just listen to the Yano Truly interview, and if Ayrton Senna was still alive, he would have sounded just like Yano. Confidence, precision, unwavering truthfulness. There was a cadence I feel Senna would have approached the same exact way. Now that's an interesting observation, glamorous triathlete. Is that what I call you? I actually think Yano looks a bit like Ayrton as well, let alone sounds like him. Anyway, I hope all's good over there in sunny California and thanks for getting in touch. Claire got in touch to say this amazing episode. And as a Yano fan since 1998, it was lovely to hear such detailed memories from him, especially about the Toyota days, 12 years later. And I can still feel the thrill of that locked out front row. Well, as a Yano fan, Claire, do you, like me, still bang the table with frustration when you think about what might have been with Toyota? Anyway, thanks for getting in touch. And what about this from Petro Fomin? Great episode, he says. I felt like a Toyota fanboy back in 2005 when Truly was my hero. Strange to hear the truth behind the team you loved. Episode of life that had no pragmatic grounding. Thank you for bringing back all of those memories. And it reminds me that Yano is still my hero. Well, me too, Petro. And reading your comment, as with everyone else's, it's quite extraordinary the way Yano generated so much love, given that he wasn't exactly a hugely successful Formula One driver in terms of statistics. But that's the thing about sport. It's not only about the numbers. Thanks for getting in touch. And let's do this last one from Gavin Bennett, who says, good timing with the Yano Truly podcast. I've just had some of his wine arrive. Lucky you, Gavin. Enjoy it. And isn't it extraordinary that his not so little winery now produces a million bottles a year? What a great second career Yano is enjoying. Now, I could carry on and on, but I'll leave it there. And I'm sorry I couldn't read out all of your messages, but please know that I've read each and every one of them. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Yost. And as ever, I'll be back next week with another guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.